over the course of the next several minutes, I'm just going to go full fangirl. The word of the week is purpose. Now, I chose this word because I needed to take a few moments to stand one Stacy Yvonne Abrams, who basically just saved our entire democracy. For context, in 2018, Stacey Abrams ran for governor of Georgia, where she was seeking to become the first black woman ever elected governor. She ran against Brian Kemp, who was then the secretary of state. Now, as secretary of state, Kemp also was in charge of elections. Yes, it is somehow possible to be in charge of elections as you're running for office. And he essentially stole the election during his six years as secretary of state. Kemp canceled 1.4 million voter registrations, including 700,000 alone in 2017. It was later discovered he purged 534,000 folks from voter registrations, and they had no idea that they'd been booted off the voter rolls. And then right before his election against Stacey Abrams, he put 53,000 voter registration applications on hold for whatever reason. Ultimately, Stacey Abrams lost the election to Brian Kemp by 50,000 votes. Now, consider this in the context of Donald Trump's shameless temper tantrum about losing the election. Stacey Abrams did not mount a legal challenge against Brian Kemp, even though she could have. And she had far more evidence on her side than Trump does because he's just pissed that people want his ass out of office. But she didn't sue. While she refused to concede defeat to Brian Kemp and really who could blame her, she did not cower. She came back better than Michael Jordan's comeback, wearing the faux five. Instead, Stacey doubled down on her efforts to stop voter suppression. She founded Fair Fight, a national voting rights organization that fights for free and fair elections. Her organization took on 18 states where voter suppression has been a significant issue. It was Stacey Abrams who convinced Democrats that Georgia could be won. Even though a Democratic presidential nominee hadn't won Georgia since 1992, Stacey Abrams had the game plan. She focused on expanding the electorate and her vision started long before she ran for governor. In 2013, she started the New Georgia Project, which was dedicated to getting people of color registered to vote. And now fast forward. After what was surely a crushing loss, Stacey Abrams basically saved America's ass. She did what black women do. She got shit done. People had all sorts of opinions about what Stacey Abrams should do after losing to Brian Kemp. Some thought she should immediately run for president. Some thought she should jump into the Senate race. She didn't do any of that. She followed her purpose, which was to stop voter suppression. And that is the word of the week. And by the way, I did a podcast with Stacey last May. So definitely dig that up and listen if you haven't already. Also, as I mentioned, her organization is called Fair Fight. You can donate to Fair Fight by going to fairfight.com. As you see from this election, every vote truly does matter. Now, I just stand one black woman and now I'm about to stand another. My guest on today's podcast. This woman has written two books that shook me to my core. They were life changing because I think they are easily two of the best books about race in America that's ever been written. She is a phenomenal scholar, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a dedicated journalist. And I promise if you listen to her for more than 30 seconds, you will be a much smarter person. There's a lot going on in this country right now 
that we're trying to make sense of. But I promise you that Isabel Wilkerson can help us figure it out. She's the author of Warmth of Other Sons and also her latest book, Cass, The Origins of Our Discontent. Both of these books are must reads. In fact, Ava DuVernay is set to write, direct and produce an adaptation of Cass for Netflix. So coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel, I've come up with a nickname for you. Um, I call you the Sade of nonfiction, right? Because I'm a big Sade fan. And everybody who is a big Sade fan knows that Sade, she will just drop one on us. And she look, she'll hide in the shadows. She'll be somewhere deep in the cut. And then it's like, boom, take this fire. And so I feel like you do that to us because Warmth of Their Sons dropped 2010. That's when Warmth of Their Sons dropped. And then now in 2020, you like, tell you what, y'all ain't ready. Ah, Cass, got you. So so I was like, she is literally the Sade of, of, non, of nonfiction. I love so, that. And that. Yeah, that is a, a true compliment, definitely. Um, I do not, I, I appreciate every guest that I have on this podcast, but you are in a special category because I feel like I'm going to spend this entire um, podcast literally fawning over you because I'm just so amazed, impressed, just inspired by your utter brilliance. I say this repeatedly whenever I'm asked about the best books I've ever read. I can promise you Warmth of Other Sons is always, always one of the first books out of my mouth. Like best book on race I've ever read. <laughs> Easy to say it was your your first book. And now I'm mad at you because after reading Cast, I'm like, can I still say that? Because of of the brilliance of cast. So I say all that to say is that welcome and thank you so much for joining me on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's dive in. Um, cast, uh, is your, your second offering. Um, you write very brilliantly about race, but not, I, I hate saying about race cause it's not about necessarily race. You're writing about cast, hence the title. Um, before we get into the discussion about the book and how you put it together and all those other good things, uh, can you explain for the audience what exactly is cast? Well, caste is uh, a different way of looking at our country. It's uh, an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society. And uh, that graded ranking or hierarchy is what determines um, a person's standing, levels of respect, benefit of the doubt accorded to a person or a group uh, or withdrawn from a person or a group. Um, access to resources or lack thereof, uh, assumptions of intelligence, competence, beauty even, um, through no fault or action of one's own, because in a hierarchy such as ours, you are born to uh, what has been a group that was assigned a particular value going back for centuries and generations. And so you don't, you're not having to do anything, you're born into it. And so it's basically a, a graded ranking of humanity um, in a hierarchy that creates a hierarchy uh, that then determines uh, so much of one's life, not everything, but so much of one's life when you just come into the world. With Warmth of the Other Sons, your first book, it took 15 years to, to write? It was 15 years. I often say that if it was a, if it was a human being of being high school and dating, that's how long it took me to finish that book. Um, I know you did more than 1,200 interviews 
for that because I, I believe I you either said or I read somewhere where you said you stopped counting at 1200 correct <laughs> well you know that was actually an audition for people to be uh, the, the protagonist in the book essentially it was like a casting call and that was why I ended up talking to as many people as I did for that book yeah so a lot of painstaking uh, care was put into warmth of other sons and then now 10 years later you have cast so um, describe what the process was like in putting together cast, say, and the differences versus how you put together Warmth of Other Sons. Well, it's interesting that you ask it in that way because one leads to the other. I mean, you know, without Warmth of the Sons, there wouldn't be this new book cast. Uh, it was through the Warmth of the Sons that I came to become aware of the idea of cast and began using the word. Uh, in the Warmth of the Sons, the word racism is not used. That's not to say that it doesn't exist and it doesn't need to be constantly interrogated, um, considered and still fought. It's just that it was not the it did it was not the comprehensive, all encompassing word that was necessary to describe what people had to endure during the Jim Crow caste system, the Jim Crow system, uh, as it as it was known then. And so I found that uh, you know as I was discovering things uh, to try to tell the story of six million people fleeing or defecting. Jim Crow, I came to, I had to really go deep in understanding what their lives was like to recreate it for the reader. And, you know, I, I had no idea that there, you know, th that in Birmingham it was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together was against the law. You could go to jail if you were caught playing checkers with a different person. I had no idea that there was actually in courtrooms throughout the South a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible. I had no idea in courtrooms throughout the South. And so when, when I started to, you know, put, you know, discover what life was really like, you know, far beyond the water fountains and the restrooms, I mean, that's just scratching the surface, you know, what people learn, you know, in um, like third graders learn during Black History Month, that's just scratching the surface about what it was really like. And so by spending, you know, the time uh, studying and then talking to so many people about what their lives were like, it was very clear that um, that there were so many rules and restrictions and protocols and customs and expectations that if you breached any of those things, it could literally mean your life. It was a matter of life and death. And that's what they were fleeing. And so it, 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 the word racism did not seem to capture the, totalita the totalitarian nature of that world and uh, the many layers of, and boundaries that were set. Um, and so I started to use the word caste. Also, caste is a word that, uh, off that, uh, anthropologists from, uh, the 1930s and 40s, when they went into the South to study it and to, you know, understand it, um, when it was actually in its deepest, um, you know, manifestation, they came out of that experience using the word cast too. So that's how I came to use the word. Without the warmth of the suns, I would not have written this book because I wouldn't have been as steeped in the in what life was really like for, for people. It is hard to, I, I see them almost as twin books in many respects. Um, and I think that's uh, pretty much how you described it. But when you when you were doing um, Warmth of Other Sons or before you did that one, like what was the thought bubble that made you want to uh, look at our society, the prism of race through the Great Migration? How did that idea uh, blossom? Well, you know, um, if you are African-American raised outside of the South, 
uh, you are very likely assuming that if, if your people did not come for, from, say, the Caribbean or from the continent, then you are very likely a product of the Great Migration. I'm a product of the Great Migration. Most people that I, you know, grew up around in uh, Washington, D.C., which is where I uh, grew up, um, you know, and, and then as I've traveled around the country as a correspondent for The New York Times, I would run into people if I was in Chicago, if I was in L.A., Detroit, wherever I was. It was everywhere. I mean, this is this is literally how African-Americans became um, a people uh, spread out throughout the country. It's how African-Americans actually became urban. You know, we just take for granted that, you know, you think of cities and you think of African-Americans. But that wasn't the way it was for the vast majority of time that we've been in this country. I mean, for the vast majority of time from 1619 until the Great Migration, African-Americans were primarily a rural people. They were a southern people. Ninety percent of all African-Americans were living in the South before the Great Migration began. So it's fairly new, you know, in terms of long history. But I, you know, it, you because it's so much a part of just how things are now for, you know, people alive today or even, you know, just only not that many decades ago, we just take for granted that that's how it's always been. But that if you if you talk to somebody long enough who's, you know, living in Detroit, African-American, you know, in Detroit for a couple of generations, you talk them long enough and you're going to get back to Alabama. You're going to get back to Mississippi. You're going to get back to Arkansas. I mean, that's just that's the way that it is. I mean, that's how everyone was spread out. That's the you know internal diaspora that happened in, in our country's history not that long ago. And so, I, you know, I, I it just, you know, as I was, you know, becoming more aware of that. You know, as a you know, as a journalist interviewing lots of people uh, in Chicago in particular, and then recognizing that it was a different stream where I grew up, I just was stunned that there wasn't more written about it. I just you know, it was just you know, this it's the sea change, it's this you know, this the magnitude of what that means to have almost an entire people relocated to the rest of the country, and thus truly becoming American in the sense of geographically is so massive. And yet there was hardly, there was very little that was really written about it, particularly from the perspective of the people who had lived. And so I just, you know, I, you know, I felt that that was the one thing that I wanted to do. It was like the only thing, it was like this big open puzzle that was right there in front of everyone's eyes and we weren't really talking about it. And so I, that's what I started to do. And the more I looked and the more people I talked to, the more fascinating it was for me and the more massive. There was just a watershed in, in not just African-American history, but in our country's history. So um, when the book was published, what were what were your notions about how it might be received? I just was so happy to have it done. And, you know, the main response that I would get wherever I would go was people would say no matter what their background, no matter what their you know age was, they would say, I had no idea. It was stunning to me that people who lived through that era would say, I had no idea. Because, you know, generally speaking, people who had endured it and survived Jim Crow weren't talking about it. In fact, that's one of the challenges in even doing a book of that kind, you know, talking to people who had lived through it. And and and, and people, you know, many of us, and many people that I would talk to since then uh, at these events I might do, they, people would come up to me and say, you know, I, my, I try to get my mother to talk about it. I try to get my grandmother to talk about it. They won't talk about it. They just don't, you know, they just keep, you know, they just do not want to talk about it. They don't want to go there. Why do you think that is? I believe after having talked to so many people and interviewed so many people who went through this is that um, it's just too painful. It's like post-traumatic stress. People, you know, people 
there was a, there have been um, studies that have been done or uh, other works that have said that if you were African-American in the South, you know, into the, you know, into the 1960s, most, most people knew of someone who had been lynched. I mean, someone in the town, sometimes even a relative, you know, going out and talking about uh, the warmth of the suns as I did after it came out and even, you know, even up until just the time of the COVID hit, um, people would tell me all kinds of stories about, you know, how their family left. And it was an uncle who had to go because you know, he was about to be lynched or they knew someone in their family was lynched. So it was such a it was such a, you know, a repressive world that m- many, many Americans just are not truly aware of that they were experiencing post-traumatic stress, almost like the survivors of war and um, and upheaval, other kinds of upheaval. And I think that they just, they just did not want to relive that. I also think that they wanted to shield their children and grandchildren and our great-grandchildren from what they had endured. And then to me, even more tragically, is I think a lot of people who survive such things, they absorb the trauma to such a degree that they begin to blame themselves they begin to carry a kind of shame as if there is some type of stigma attached to what they had endured. And uh, because there's very little in the way of affirmation in the rest of society for, for having gone through that. And so a lot of them, I think, experience a lot of shame. That, that To me, that's the most tragic of all, because they were born into a system, not of their own making. They had nothing to do with the creation of it. All The main thing was to just to try to survive. And their survival alone, I think, is... Um, uh, a reason for honoring them and respecting them and, and, and holding them in a, with a sense of, of awe, really, that they could survive all that they did. So uh, those are the reasons why I think that it just didn't get talked about. So how soon after Warmth of Other Sons did you begin to start working on cast? Well, you know, I think that it, it's been marinating for a, for a very long time. You know, I, I had, you know, I actually started talking about it more, talking about warmth meant I was talking about cast. I was using, I was talking about it all the time. I was using the word cast all the time. And, and then, you know, it sort of was an evolution because, uh, then Trayvon happened, you know, what, what happened to Trayvon Martin? And that was 2012. And I think it was February 2012. And there's something about how, that moment, uh, the, the, the moment when, uh, that not just, not only that it happened, but also the outcome of that case. Uh, I, I think a lot of us remember where we were when we heard, you know, when we found, you know, whatever, however we found out about it. And it was kind of, a, it was almost like, a um, some type of jarring into a kind of reality that you didn't want to be in. You didn't want to believe that, um, and I think that, that that was one of the things that really got me thinking about how things, how, how, how we still live under the shadow of that originating caste system. Interestingly enough, in terms of, the, I actually wrote a piece for uh, the New York Times after that. And that would be, you, you could say, the beginning of my really going, starting to go deep on the issue of caste. And I started out with talking about caste in that op-ed. And um, it's interesting that where that the county where um, Trayvon Martin uh, was killed was the same county that one of the 
people in my book, uh, George Starling, had been from. He was from the same county. And so there was this interconnectedness that seemed to be this messaging that I was supposed to be paying attention to. And, and that sort of one thing just led to the other. And, and then over, over time, other things continued to happen. And I just said, I have to, I have to go in and, and really just, you know, stop and focus and, and get this done. Because of the overwhelming success of warmth, um, did that make the writing experience for cast different? Like, I don't know if you felt any pressure. I guess that's what I'm asking. If you felt any pressure to recreate what you did the first time around. You know, well, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, we, that each of us, um, have no competition other than ourselves. You, you, you know, in other words, trying to be the best that you can be is the only competition we have, each of us. And so my goal was to just do the very best that I could with it. I wasn't thinking so much about, I don't often think about what's going to happen afterward. I mean, I, what the pieces that I did for the times that ended up winning a Pulitzer, I wasn't, I, I, a lot of people might think, you know, well, were you thinking? No, I wasn't. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, you have no control over what's going to happen after you finish something. All you have control over is what you do with what you have in front of you. And so I really live by that because there's, I have no control over anything else. I just, I felt for this second book, this, um, this, Pull. I felt as if there was, it wasn't something that I even necessarily wanted to do. It's something that I felt I had to do. I, I feel that the phenomenon of caste, the psychology of caste, the, um, the ways that caste can work on people without our realizing it, you know, has a lot to teach us about, um, you know, about some aspects of, aspects of our, um, country or the way we interact that that's seemingly nothing else would explain. And that's the reason why I felt that, um, that I needed to get into it. So it just was, I wasn't hearing anyone else. I wasn't seeing what I thought, you know, I was hoping maybe someone else would do something, but nobody did, you know, so I, you know, there I go, I'll go into it. And so I really, you know, you ask about the first book. I don't really think about it in that way. This is a, something different. It was something that I was not seeing anyone else doing. Um, and I felt, I feel as if, as long as there's something that I have that, that I need to say, then that's what I need to focus in on. If I don't have anything to say, I'm not saying anything. And that's why I compared you to Sade, because she does the same thing. That is why she's like, you know what? I don't, I don't have an album for y'all right now, but now, now I do. All right. I got something to say. I got a heartbreak. Let me talk about it. Right? <laughs> that's how it is. Um, so, of, of course, you know, when cast hit, it was it was like a, a lightning bolt. Uh, Oprah Winfrey made it her selection for her book club, which means like basically this is about to be a huge book. <laughs> um, and so seeing her uh, glowing endorsement um, of this book, what did what did that mean to you? Well, I mean, it was just I was uh, out of the blue. I had again, like I've said to you, I mean, I have no expectations. One reason why I have no expectations is because, you know, it takes so much work to get the things that I do done. I mean, so, there's so much research that goes into these things. I am having to go through so much um, material, the my own work, um, you know, reading and trying to understand the, you know, works from other disciplines, you know, it's all, you know, philosophy, psychology, anthropology, uh, you know, political science, 
philosophy, you know, history, of course, all those things. I'm doing, I am so immersed in it. And I, I emerge from uh, my immersion <laughs> with this kind of like just so um, almost um, just, you know, ready to just go and get it out to the world. The main thing, I mean, there's a reason that the people call it delivering a manuscript, almost like you've been pregnant and you've now delivered the baby. It's sort of like that. And you're just exhausted from the process that, you know, you're not, I really was not, I, I, I didn't have time to think about what was going to be happening, who was going to do what. So it came out of the blue. I was just, you know, I was stunned. I was, uh, you know, thrilled, of course. And then, you know, to hear her voice over the phone, I mean, you hear the voice, you know, you, it's one of the most recognizable voices in the world. It was, a, you know, a, a, an out-of-body experience to to be in that situation and to, to hear, hear, hear that this is going to be her choice. So let me start on uh, Isabel's behalf because Oprah that's a big endorsement, right? But it's competing with Barack Obama endorsing when I think he said Warmth of Other Sons was like his favorite book that year, right? So let's not act like you're not used to uh, super famous historical figures endorsing <laughs> endorsing your work. <laughs> I, but there's a, you know, I, I guess to, to further um, sort of resume read, I mean, you're the first Black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. Uh, you've written this um, this legendary work. Um, have you allowed yourself to reflect or at least enjoy what you've accomplished? I, it, you know, that's an interesting question that you ask. I don't know that I have because I'm constantly in the process of trying to get something else done. And, you know, after Warmth came out, for example, there was no time really to reflect because I was on the road constantly with that book. I mean, I really was on the road. I mean, like I said, you know, even with COVID-19, there were events I was supposed to be doing that, of course, were, you know, were canceled or or uh, delayed or having to be rescheduled to who knows when. So I, I, I haven't actually done that. I don't really take the time. I'm My focus is getting things done. It's I, I my you know, my goal is to is to is to create and produce the work. And I'm, I mean that. I mean, I'm, I'm here for a purpose. I have a purpose uh, here. Everyone, I hope, finds their purpose. And I I know what my purpose is. And I'm trying to do my purpose. <laughs> if, that, if that doesn't even, is that a phrase? I don't know. <laughs> you made it one. I, I, who am I to question Yilbrian? So yes, that is a phrase. <laughs> um, of course, you could not have predicted some of the events that have happened in the the country this this year, which has felt like for everybody the longest year of anybody's life. But nevertheless, um, the positioning of this book coming out at this time, um, have you thought about how sort of divine that is? Because how I guess I'm trying to figure out an articulate way to relate what you've written in cast to what we're seeing now with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and all these names. They seem to be perfect encapsulations of what you're talking about in this book. So for those who um, maybe haven't read it, even for those who have read cast, like how does what you talk about in the book relate to these instances of brutality that we have seen just in 2020? We know we live under the shadow, continuing shadow of a, of a caste system that's described in the book, but how it plays out specifically, we no one can predict. Uh, I would say that I don't write for the moment. You know, I, I don't write for any moment. I, I write uh, with an eye toward looking at the history, an eye toward what is universal and true throughout 
um, our country's history and really true for, you know, sort of human nature. Um, you know, my bio, my avatar uh, for on social media is, is I write about human nature. And I mean that um, because I, I really believe that that um, sadly, a lot of things that we have seen recently um, are things that we have seen in some iteration before. And, you know, history um, that is not addressed um may not repeat itself exactly, but it will reappear. And, and that's what I feel we're seeing. So it's a, it's a continuum. You know, our, um, you know, our, our country's history is on a continuum. And while we make, uh, you know, these strides of, of progress, and then they are often met with, um, with resistance and, and sometimes outright backlash. And then, then there's, then there's a, there's a going, then there's a regression. And then there's a plateauing and it can be a long time before the next stage of progression. So it's it's a back and forth, back and forth, and it's all a continuum. And as long as we continue on on this a path where we're not really engaging, first of all, don't even know the history to truly be on the same page as Americans about what our history is. We continue to be at odds with one another because we're not on the same page about what even has happened. We can't go forward because we are not in agreement about what even has happened. And so as long as we're not in agreement, we don't have a, a collective shared narrative about our country's history, then we keep seeing this over and over again. So I'm not ever writing to a moment. I'm, I'm, I'm writing for uh, to, to, to try to, to, to go beneath it, to try to transcend the moment so that we can get to the some of the root uh, causes uh, that we may not be able to see, you know, to, to look beyond what we think we see to what is the actual core um, that w- that we are facing, even if we're not dealing with it. You know, I describe our country as being like an old house. That's one of the metaphors, a lot of metaphors in this book, as you know, and I describe it as like an old house. And, you know, you, you know, it's got the, 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 the beams and the pillars and the joists that you cannot see in any building that we might live in. And then we can get distracted by what we can see, which is the, you know, the walls and the paint and the, the wallpaper, all the things that we can see. And, you know, after rain, we may not want, want to go into the basement, but, you know, if we don't go in the basement, we're going to have to deal with what's there, whether we go in there or not. We're going to have to deal with it, whether we know what's going on or not. You know, I, you know, ignorance is no protection from one's inaction. You know, you if you do not know what's going on, you are not protected just because you don't know. You're still having to deal with it. And and that's why I always try to I'm trying to go beneath what we think we can see so that we can finally get to some of the root causes of what we're dealing with. Uh, speaking of the, the metaphors in your book, I mean, I thought one of the best ones you made is when uh you wrote that race is the skin, cast is the bones. And that really, I think, fused together how those principles, you know, kind of work. And more importantly, I totally got succinctly why you don't use the word, you know, racism um, necessarily in, in the books, because it, it can be a huge distraction. Um, although calling somebody a, a castist doesn't really work as it does not it does sing off the tongue as well. <laughs> you know, it doesn't roll off the tongue because we're not we're not used to it. But I don't like labels anyway. One of the points I'm making is I, I don't know where where does it get us to call somebody something. I, I don't know. Have we have we resolved the underlying issue? That's what I, I that's I generally don't. 
I, I don't generally do that myself again, but I, what other people do and how they engage and work through how they process, I, I don't, I don't judge. I'm merely saying that for me, um, uh, and I, I think that the word castist is not a word that we're not used to the word cast to begin with, much less castist. So it, it's all kind of, <laughs> right. you know, it's new language anyway. Very true. Uh, you hit on a point about uh, how we can't even get on, on the same page in terms of history. And I want to drill down on that. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Sade, a.k.a. Isabel Wilkerson uh, in just a moment. I'm sure you probably saw this and I wanted to uh, make sure that I apologize to you. I don't care about the other idiots out there. Um, so I got in trouble for getting a, a book review of, of your, it wasn't a review. That was not a compre- a tweet about your book got me in trouble. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure it probably came back to you at some point because I actually discussed it on this podcast or whatever about what I was trying to say. As you know, Twitter is not often the place for nuance about it. Right. So um, in caste, you specifically compare the caste systems of India and and uh, Nazi Germany to bring home the point about how certain things are, you know, there's connective tissue there. Um, nowhere in the book, so people should know, was Isabel Wilkerson saying what I said, okay, just, just so everyone knows and so this doesn't come back on you when I, I was merely making the point that we just have this inflated sense of our superiority in this country because we have all gotten drunk on the wine of American exceptionalism, right? That's what we've been told our whole life. We the leader of the free world, best country on earth. And as I tell people, I was like, those are affirmations, right? That's a little bit different than we know that this to be true, but we say it with such truth and with such conviction, because as you said before the break, we're not even on the same page about what actually happened in American history. Uh, I like to delve into that a little bit further. Why is that? Um, I could blame the educational system. We all could, right? But why is there such a concerted effort to whitewash the history in this country? Um, I don't understand why simply telling the truth is so difficult about it. Um, What are your thoughts about how our inability to do this with history has kind of led us to where we are right now? Well, I think a lot of it has goes back to our, you know, our, the founding creed of, you know, of um, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, of uh, the creed of, of of equality, the belief, the desire to believe in equality, the desire to believe in democracy, the desire to believe that uh, that um, it's a that 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 it's a just, fair uh, world and country, um, the, the 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 desire to believe in the essential. Um, you know, and the essential just uh, nature of of what the country s- believes it stands for, and I think that anything that goes against that, uh, first of all, is 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 uh, hard to absorb because that's just how people have been raised and trained over the generations and the centuries. But I also think that it, um, you know, looking at it historically, um, I, I think that we as a country don't spend enough time on on understanding. Uh, reconstruction, the aftermath of the Civil War, reconstruction, and then how reconstruction ended. Because how reconstruction ended is kind of what set in motion um, the ways that we perceive the country. 
And, um, you know, the after at the end of the war, at the end of the Civil War, of course, the North prevailed uh, on the battlefield, but it did not necessarily prevail in terms of the the narrative afterward. And um, and because the North ended up retreating uh, from the South uh, in an effort to maintain the peace and to bring the South into uh, the country as a whole, to reunite the country. There was a tremendous effort to reunite the country after the Civil War. And one of the casualties of that was, of course, the the uh, the safety and security and standing of African-Americans who were essentially abandoned and uh, the people who had been formerly enslaved. But also a casualty was how the entire war was perceived, how the stories were told, how the narrative sort of worked its way into how the country sees itself. And uh, there hasn't been, there has not, I don't know that there's been a yeah, that's the reason why we have the these debates and this these tensions over the emblems and symbols of the of the Confederacy because the Confederacy uh, was managed to uh, to really have a strong um, influence over the the final narrative the narrative that we all have inherited about what the country stands for and um, and you know what the uh, what what's what was called the lost cause was actually about. Um, a lot of people are not aware that, you know, when you talk about a civil rights movement, which civil rights movement are you speaking about? Because there was civil rights legislation of the 1860s. And then it took 100 years to have the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. So there's so much about our country's history that people don't know. And a lot of it, like I said, is going back, you know, many uh, decades. And, and we're a country that's a young country. So we don't even like thinking about the past. We like, we're always looking forward. Like we don't want to think about the past. We don't want to, that's in the past. It doesn't have to take long to say that's in the past. You know, that was, that was 20 years ago. That's in the past. So we're not naturally, and we're not a country that actually thinks deeply um, because it's a forward thinking, um, you know, technology driven of the moment, looking forward kind of country. So there are lots of different reasons why. And, and those are some of them. A lot can be said and a lot has been written about um, the awfulness of the, the Nazi regime. But I tell you what happens when you go to Germany. You don't see statues of Nazis. Nowhere. <laughs> like, that's not a thing. All right. But here, <laughs> uh, as I made the point about John Lewis, uh, who uh, unfortunately passed and was an icon and a hero. I mean, he walked the Edmund Pettus Bridge and I encourage people look up who Edmund Pettus was. He has a bridge. That's all I got to say. <laughs> and so. Um, that to me is a perfect sort of depiction of, of what you were talking about and not being on the same page and these lies that we constantly, um, kind of tell ourselves, uh, 2042, um, will be the first year that whites will no longer be the majority in this country. What impact do you think this could have on our caste system? What impact does it have in the future? What impact does it have now? Which, oh, I guess you could say, I mean, it has, it, it, it's really related. It's both right. To some degree. Um, We'll just stick to now. What what impact does that have on now? Yeah. So, you know, the the, the uh, projections were announced by the census back in 2008 and uh, it did get attention at the time. We got a lot of attention at the time and uh, filtered through, you know, uh, talk radio and, you know, newscasts and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I think that it was a jarring moment um, for uh, for many people um, to 
even begin to contemplate a, a distribution of the population that would be different than anyone has ever known. You know, no time in the in the history of the country has there been anything other than the the majority that we've known it to be. You know, since the founding and um, uh, since you know since I have to, to uh, adjust that by saying, of course, the country was taken from indigenous people who were the majority at the time that the colonists first arrived. But from the time that the United States was created as a country on its own, this has been the majority um, all this time. And so the idea of this being, there being some kind of uh, inversion of what everyone has been accustomed to uh, raises questions of existential, um, you know, existential fears about what, what will happen. What does that mean? Um, what, uh, what does that mean for uh, a country that um, has pride itself on majority rule? Um, what happens when um, the historic majority is no longer the majority, assuming that, the, that these uh, projections hold? Um, because there are, you know, that these are projections that, that could be affected by any number of policies as well. So, uh, so what happens when that, when that occurs? And um, one of the things that um, uh, I I think the the reason why people feel fearful is because there's never been a time when that has been even contemplated. That's never, ever had to be the case. And, you know, our country is has been one that has experienced so much segregation, even in the north. In fact, in the north, segregation is is more pronounced. It's called hyper segregation in the north that many, many people in the historic majority have not not um, been in circumstances uh, in their in the logistic logistically where they've had to even be around people um, who are not in the majority the, the, you can build, one could build one's entire life without really being around people other than yourself. So it, it, it raises all kinds of questions about just the, you know, just everyday logistics to also issues of, of what happens with majority rule. There are all kinds of questions that are raised by that. But I would also say that, um, that the fears from a caste perspective, you know, in terms of history, and it may be that people are are worrying about something or concerned about something that does not have to happen in the ways that, that they fear it might. And that, that doesn't mean for good or for ill. And that's because we have the example of South Africa, where um, there's the there's a, a, a minority, a minority of people, the minority, the powerful minority actually is white. And they have been in the minority for the duration of that country's history. And they have been in power the entire time, even now. While there may not be the same level of political power um, in, um, you know, in, in 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 some ways from a practical standpoint, uh, the economic power and thus the influence has remained in the hands of the minority uh, that's already always been in power. And so there are many different ways that this could uh, play out. And um, this is a moment where uh, the country can begin thinking about what it wants to be. You know, what kind of country does 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 America want to be? Uh, does it want to be an inclusive, open minded, embracing country that builds on the strengths of all of its people? Or does it want to regress into further fear and division? This is a moment of, of, of decision making about what the country will be. And so 2042 is the projected date. Sometimes it gets pushed back 
based upon what the projections might be. But it's it's you know it's within the next few decades uh, that that this would be a demographic uh, change in our country. Is it um, fair or too much hyperbole to say that what we're seeing now is a desperate grasp of the ruling class um, to maintain that power um, by many of the you know, when you look at something like voter suppression and, and all these other things that are happening politically, I mean, is it fair to read it that way, that this is a last Hail Mary attempt to make sure that power stays securely in the ruling class's hands? From a historic perspective, that is what has happened in the past where, you know, people will uh, do whatever they can to maintain the hierarchy as they've known it. And, and that's that's, you know, I think that's what we're seeing. Um, were you, uh, as I mentioned, you know, you compared India's uh, caste system, which is uh, the the oldest surviving caste system. Um, so you compared theirs and you also um, compared that to Nazi Germany. Why did you, their caste system, why did you think, because um, we know what an explosive, um, uh, you know, sometimes when you make any comparison or any parallels to Nazi Germany, like that can, <laughs> that can get people's attention for sure. Uh, why did you choose um, Germany during that time to to make those parallels with the United States in terms of comparing the caste system? Let me clarify that I did not start out looking at Germany. I started out looking at India because India was the most obvious uh, place to try to better understand how hierarchy and caste works. It was an obvious place to go. It's the most recognizable caste system in the world. And uh, that was what I was focusing on um, for the most part and knew that that was going to be important to truly understand that. And then Charlottesville happened. And that was, you know, at Charlottesville, you know, we we saw the protesters who were, um, you know, uh, carrying and um, uh, parading the paraphernalia. Uh, and, and symbols of both the Confederacy and of Nazi Germany, the protesters merged those two cultures. The protesters merged those two, um, uh, you know, um, hierarchies. The protesters merged those, uh, two, uh, regimes, you might say, those, those two ways of, of, of managing, um, hierarchy. And so the, the symbolism occurred there with the with the protesters it was not it, I, I was not the one even you know necessarily looking at that until i saw that they saw a connection themselves between nazi germany and the confederacy and made it very clear that they did and so that uh got my attention to begin to look uh at germany in the beginning not so much about um the nazis per se but how germany had been dealing with uh, its history, how it had reckoned with and atoned for that history in the decades at the after uh, World War II. And I, you know, once I got to, to look at it, I mean, to your point about the fact that there are no no statues to any of them whatsoever. So if, if the if protesters in Charlottesville made the comparison themselves between these two uh, cultures, and in one, there are symbols. In fact, the Charlottesville was about the protest to main, to keep that symbol, keep that monument, that monument to the statue of Rab Robert E. Lee intact. But in the, in, um, in Germany, there are no equivalents to the, the Robert E. Lee statue. In fact, it's quite the opposite. All of the, all of the, uh, 
you know, headquarters and um, locations that were connected to the Nazis have been converted into places of education, of museums and places that are uh, memorials to those who were who suffered and were victims of, of that regime. And so this was um, this was a complete opposite of, of how the United States had uh, dealt with its history, or particularly the South, the South in particular dealt with its history. And so, uh, but I had no idea, you know, once I got there, I had no idea that it went so much further than that, that in fact, there was this connection between the United States and Nazi Germany in ways that I would not have imagined, wasn't looking for, and, 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 and the deeper I uh, started to research it, I discovered that there was, for example, there were, uh, there were German eugenicists who actually were consulting with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the Nazi takeover. That American eugenicists had these books that they wrote and that were big sellers in Germany in the years leading up to the Third Reich. And, and you know, I have to emphasize over and over again, I have to emphasize that the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate. They did not need anyone to show them how to hate. They That they had down pat. Without, with or without America, they knew how to hate. To hate. But what they did was they, they actually sent researchers to the United States to study the Jim Crow laws um, and laws in other states that uh, restricted who could marry whom. They studied the anti-miscegenation laws, and there were anti-miscegenation laws in 41 of the 50 states at some point in our country's history. And the most recent one was, one of them was not overturned until 2000, until the year 2000 in the state of Alabama. So this is not ancient history. It reminds me of something my uh, former personal trainer of mine used to say, um, because, you know, when you start working out and you want to maybe lose weight or get healthier, you want it to happen really fast. Right. And she would be like, OK, so it took you 10 years to put on this weight, but you want it off in three weeks. Like that doesn't add up. Right. So it took us hundreds of years to get to this point to sort of suggest that, you know, some even the most sweeping New Deal type of legislation would probably still require a lot of work to undo the damage that um, has been done. As I mentioned, I got fun questions. Very quick hit. It's a game, Isabel. I like to play with all my guests here on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's called This or That. Oh, so I'm going to give you two choices. Yes. <laughs> don't, don't try to academic your way out of these choices either. Like I'm going to give you two choices and you must pick one. That's the way it goes. She's already looking at me like I'm annoyed. So <laughs> you have to you have to do this. Um, so uh, I know that you're a big fan. Of course, who isn't a big fan of James Baldwin? Right. right. So uh, go tell it on the mountain or if Beale Street could talk. Beale Street. Mm, I'm actually surprised that you said that. All right. <laughs> you did that. But you did that with conviction. So, see, I knew that you were ready. Uh, Richard Wright or Zora Neale Hurston. I have to say, right, you know, I just because of warmth of the suns, what can I say? I have to. Yeah. <laughs> These questions are hard, but, I, you know, I, I got the title for my first book from Richard Wright. So, I mean, he's his his work, you know, inspired the title. So I, I have to go with that. Getting a nine out of 10 from Room Raider. For people who don't know, Room Raider is this wonderful Twitter feed because we're all in COVID and we're all doing things from home. They rate what the back what your backdrop looks like on every television appearance, whatever it may be. And uh, Isabel got a nine out of 10 from Room Raider. Uh, was that an uh, honor that was better than being picked for Oprah's book club? Which one? <laughs> that is so unfair because 
it, you know, both of them are really, really tough. Obviously, I have to say Oprah. <laughs> but that Room Raider one, look, I got a 10 out of 10. So I was like, yes. <laughs> and, you know, it was partly because I didn't get a 10. You're right. Had they given you the 10, it might have been above Oprah. Um, and, uh, yeah, finally, uh, you're, you're a proud Howard graduate. Um, you worked on the Howard student newspaper, correct? The Hilltop. So when it comes to Howard alums, Kamala Harris, a puffy. <laughs> I will say Kamala Harris. Okay. That was reluctant. I I saw hesitation. Part of you wanted to say Puffy. I know you did. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I will say Kamala Harris. Uh, I am going to uh, support um, uh, a sister bison. Yes, a sister bison. And I, I, you know, this is no shade, but I don't know if Puffy actually graduated from Howard. He went to Howard. See, and there's another thing. Yeah. There it is. Yep. See, sometimes you got to split hairs in these very tough and difficult choices. Uh, I just want to thank you so much, um, Isabel, for spending this time uh, with me. I know we met a long time ago. I believe we did a panel together at ESPN. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I still have that photo. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, I'm so glad that you were able to spend this time with me. This is truly an honor. I cannot even describe what this means to me just on a personal level with you being um, a practicing journalist. I know you're in a different form now, like writing these books, but um, as a, a journalist and uh, just as a historian and a scholar, the books you have written have like just changed generations. So I cannot implore all of you listening enough. You need to read Warmth of the Other Sons first, <laughs> right? Then get to graduate to cast. And I promise you it will change your entire perspective about what you thought about how race and class and caste work in this country. So read it right now as we're taping this podcast. I think it's in the top five of nonfiction on the New York Times bestseller list. It was number four the last time I checked. It may be higher now. Who knows? We need to make it number one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Isabel's getting out of here. One more segment, guys. You know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. There's only one narrative that really matters from this exhausting ass election. And that narrative is black people saved y'all ass. That's it. But fuck it. I'm bothered because already here comes the fuck shit. Now, Democrats essentially have won the presidency, but there were some key Senate races that Democrats lost, though. There are two big ones in Georgia that they hopefully can win. Uh, those are going to a runoff next month. But let's talk about the races that were lost. Despite the fact that South Carolina Senate hopeful Jamie Harrison had an endless amount of money, he lost to Republican Lindsey Graham, a hypocritical clown. In Maine, Susan Collins, who if strongly worded email was a person, it would be Susan Collins. She held on to her seat against Democrat Sarah Gideon. Now, Susan Collins will always express her dissatisfaction and then she'll just vote however the Republicans tell her. Now, there were other seats in the House of Representatives that Republicans were able to flip, even though the Democrats still have control over the House. There was an assumption that they would expand their control because I don't know, after a president essentially is responsible for 240,000 deaths because of COVID-19, you would think people might want to leave this party alone entirely. But that wasn't the case. But just like clockwork, 
Because you really can't set your watch to this shit. Here comes the infatuation with white voters. Now, during a private phone call among House Democrats, moderate Democrats blame progressives for the inability to gain greater ground in the House and their inability to overtake the Senate. Former presidential candidate Andrew Yang said the Democrats are seen as coastal urban elites who police cultural issues and don't care about the working class's way of life. Full fucking stop. So we're back at this shit again. The white working class, because realize whenever politicians talk about the working class, they're actually just talking about white people, rural white people, suburban white people. We just endured four years worth of stories about how the white working class felt so rejected and left behind that they voted for a racist who would stick it to the rich elite assholes who have the nerve to want to go to college and better themselves, even though they voted for a rich elite asshole. As we unpacked the layers, it turned out it wasn't economic anxiety or wanting to stick it to the man. It was the racism that turned them on. I'm not doing this shit again, people. So here's what I need Democrats to do. First of all, stop worrying about the people standing in line outside the club. Worry about the people inside in VIP popping bottles and doing tequila shots. Make sure they have a good ass time. That would be black people, the people in VIP, because it was black people who put Joe Biden in office. Black people in big cities like Philadelphia, Atlanta and Detroit. His campaign was on life support until he hit South Carolina and then pragmatic black people who know white people better than white people know white people decided to put him on because they knew he was a white man that other white people would vote for. Now, I know this may come as a surprise to some politicians, but black people are working class people. Brown people are working class people. Realize the racism is so deep in this country that conservatives have tricked white working class people into voting against themselves and for them because anytime they can convince them that black people will get a crumb of anything, they eagerly vote against it. They vote against health care, social programs, criminal justice reform, because if they have to share anything with black people, they'd rather not have it at all. So it's not that Democrats message doesn't resonate because clearly it resonates with black and brown people who overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party. It's that in this country, some people choose whiteness over what's best for them and their families. And look, you can't negotiate with a terrorist. You sometimes can't get people to see reason, even if it's for their own good. But what we're not going to do is spend a moment treating white working class people like the Rubik's Cube. Well, we all know why the majority of white people since Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act decided to go Republican. It was because the Democratic Party became the party of equality. It was because Democrats started to care a little too much about us, even though they definitely take black support for granted. It's because it's a party where you see black faces, brown faces, lesbians, transgender, the full scope. There are some white people who don't want any part of that, no matter how kindly you tell them that it's probably better that they support the party that actually gives a shit about universal health care climate change and financial equality i'm not saying that the white working class should be forgotten about they are not a lost cause but sometimes you can't let people who ain't down for the mission ruin your cause stay unbothered jamel hill is unbothered is produced by spotify and unbothered inc from unbothered inc ashley van horn is our head of talent rich burner is our technical director and evan dick is our executive producer from Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Hold up. 